You are listening to the official Sasta podcast with your host, Harry Stebbings. And for all those that haven't done so already, you can follow me on Snapchat at H Stebbings. Likewise, you can follow the main man and the brains behind Sasta, Jason Lemkin, on Twitter at Jason LK. However, for now and today's show, and my word, do we have a great guest for you today? He's the author of the best selling book, Predictable Revenue, which provides the framework for the outbound process and sales team Aaron created for Salesforce.com during his time as director of corporate development and acquisitions where he added an extra $100 million in revenue in just a few years. And in today's show, we discuss Aaron's and Jason Lemkin's fantastic new book, From Impossible to Inevitable, which outlines how hyper-growth companies create predictable revenue. So if you're a founder asking, why aren't we growing faster? How do we get into hyper-growth mode? And then how do you sustain that growth? Then this book really is for you, and you can find the links in the show notes. But enough from me, so now I'm going to hand over to the one and only Aaron Ross. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Aaron, absolutely fantastic to have you on the official Sasta podcast. I feel it's been far too long in the coming, but we have you here now. So thank you so much for joining us. It's great. Hey, happy to be here. So I'd love to start off today by hearing about how you made your way into the industry and what your real kind of start and background story was. Well, and this is the short version, right? Because this is the short version. Summarize. Yeah, I'm like getting two old. Two to three minutes. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting old. I'm not like. What are you like? You're like 19 or something, aren't you, Harry? We're not going to talk about my age. I'm all right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, but I have enough. I'm old enough where I have more story than we have time for. And you know, actually, first I'd say like the last thing I ever thought I would be in my life for a long time was something like a sales author or have done sales consulting. That really was just about the last thing I ever thought I would do until, you know, five years ago or so, which, <laughs> what, but what made you write the first book? Yeah. Well, the funny thing is, you know, so I was at Salesforce in 2002 to 2006, three years in, two or three years in, you know, I built this out, the outbound prospecting team, outbound sales team. At some point, I don't remember exactly when I felt like I, I wanted to start writing. I started blogging, and this is still at the point where Salesforce had banned blogs. So and I just blogged for myself for probably like a year, year and a half. I might have told a few people, but not that many. You know, I just sort of kept at it for a few years. And then the book actually got published. I knew I wanted to do a book. But the reason it actually got published in 2011 is because I got married and had kids. That's why I got published. I couldn't sort of screw around anymore. I was like, oh, I got to get this. I got to publish this thing, get it out there. That's the real answer. Okay, so, so that's the real answer. So, so talk me through the background. Sorry, I interrupted you with my uh, excitement there. So how, <laughs> how did you, what was your kind of your start in the industry? Yeah, the short version is I coding in high school, civil engineering in school, uh, didn't you know, like that, but not enough to do a career. Investment banking after that, liked it, but not enough to do a career. Product marketing after that, liked it, not enough to do a career. Started a company called Lease Exchange. That company raised venture. That company failed. It's like, if I'm going to do a company, I got to figure out how to make money with the company, how sales is going to work. So I got to go do sales at salesforce.com. So that's really, that was the entry point into SaaS. And SaaS was, of course, I don't know if you even called it SaaS back then, 2002. Um, but that was how I ended up doing sales at a, as a software company and got a clue about it. But I do want to, I do want to move on to, to kind of actual sales now. As you said, you know, sales author and sales expert. And we mentioned your first book there, but you've also got a second with, with the main man, Jason, from impossible yep. to inevitable. Um, absolutely sterling read. I've got to be honest. I'm not an intellect on books. Um, but it's one of the very few that I've read, uh, from cover to cover. So absolutely. Absolutely love that. But I want to pick up on one of the key topics. Um, and that's the importance of nailing a niche and real focus. So so what do you really mean by this? Does this mean going very small? Yeah, that's a great question. So the first section of From Impossible is on nailing a niche. Maybe you say that in Canada, England here, we call it nailing a niche, whatever. 
And the reason it's the first section, before I get to what it is, is four or five years ago, predictable revenue came out. Some people had incredible success with that. Some people struggled. And so this over the last few years, and with Jason, we put our heads together. It's like, what is the most common reason companies struggle to grow in the first place? Uh, it's because they haven't nailed a niche. And what that means is not about um, even like picking a cer- certain industry, like, oh, we're going to do finance or we're going to do transportation. It's about having, you can have a big vision, but being very specific, you know, very focused in who you start with, with baby steps around what type of customer segments, like knowing these different opportunities, knowing these different segments you could go after, and maybe someday you should go after in the future, but which ones today can you actually go find, talk to, and have them uh, need you enough they're actually going to buy from you, right? And not getting so scattered, going after all kinds of people, all kinds of features that you just spread yourself too thin and you're sort of so unfocused, you're not, you don't find a, a place where you can really like double down and grow fast. I mean, I'm intrigued then. How much of a role does iteration and testing different customer segments and, and different niches or niches, as you said, um, how much of a role does that play? Is iteration key? In the beginning, it's, it's yeah, it can, for a lot of companies, there's a few companies who just get it very early. But for most companies, you have a great product or they have a market and they just got to iterate and iterate and iterate what kind of segments, what kinds of could be verticals or even use cases. If you have a platform, there's a company yesterday I, I just met with and they're really struggling. They've got a ton of money. They've got this platform for sort of mobility tracking, Internet of Things, blah, blah, and no one's buying their stuff and they can't quite connect you know, for all these companies, like the whole world could use this platform, right? This is sort of an old story. Company has a product. Anyone in the world could use it and get value from it, but no one's buying it. Where are you a need to have versus where are you a nice to have? Is something that's hard to have the internal discipline in the early days to say, these customers could all use us, but they don't need it so much that they're going to buy. we got to focus on this, like one or two of these other really specific areas that may or may not be sexy. Maybe they're boring or not. But there's enough of a pain there that they're going to need us and go through all the huge, way more time, energy, uh, and effort than you expect process to evaluate us, bias, and deploy us. And how do you know when you really have hit that, when you've hit that um, niche or that product market fit, really? Because is it when, you know, often people say it's when someone's willing to pay for your product, or is it when you hit a certain... No, no it's not that. No, when, that's not it. So what is it then? Well, there's a di- so here's the difference. There's a lot. There's people and companies who come to you and work with you because there's some sort of prior relationship. It's almost like, all right, once you've got ten, you know, Jason actually, can, you know, says once we've got you've got ten unaffiliated customers who didn't know you before. They're not a referral. They're not some friend of friend. They're not your mom who found you, got interested, and actually bought. Then you're on track. Right? You found some. You've nailed some sort of starting niche. 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 So it's ten. So it's kind of 10. unaffiliated. Unaffiliated. Because right? then people can pay you for your product, but if it's a friend or a friend or a friend or they came through a referral. So I think, look, when you start out, getting customers through your networks and relationships is you, you need to. That's the easiest place to start. But it can also be a bit of a crutch in the sense of at some point when you need to grow and you want to, you know, grow fast, ready to speed up, you can't depend on relationships. If you're dependent on growth relationships, you're going to plateau. That's why most companies plateau around one to 10 million in revenue, right? They've tapped out their relationships. They haven't been forced to figure out how to do outbound prospecting or outbound marketing to people who don't know them. Two ways I really want to take this conversation. So, so I'm actually going to go, actually go back to that example use case you said. Um, and you said about them raising VC funding, the startup in the IoT mobility space. Um, yeah. You said about the VC funding. Is it not harder to raise VC funding if you focus on a niche because VCs traditionally want a mo- much larger market to behold? Yeah, well, this is where you don't... Yeah, I don't want people to confuse... All right, you can have a big vision. Say, we want to 
rule the world and say, you know what? That's great. Fantastic. What city are you going to start with so that you can actually prove to me you've got something that's going to work? Because if you can't rule a city, how am I going to believe you're going to do the world? In other words, you could want to disrupt the entire financial services market. Great. You know, what segment can you start with where you can show me you know how to go get customers of some certain type and they're actually going to buy from you? Because otherwise, it's easy to paint a big vision, but how are you going to make it happen like tomorrow? in the short term. So, retain, so yeah, it's retain. not about thinking small. It's about just being focused in the next steps. Yeah, retain the vision and then focus next steps. And then, yeah. then, and then we said about kind of the low-hanging fruit of going through your network for your first customers. I'm really mm-hmm. intrigued then, once, you, once you've kind of um, infiltrated your network and you're looking to gain the unaffiliated customers, um, what, what are the next steps? You mentioned outbound marketing there. How do you transition them from the friendly sales that you've done first to the unaffiliated sales? Cells and how do yep. you bridge that gap? Yeah, and it can be it can be painful. It's part one of the points is it can be way harder. It's often way harder than people think it will be. And so, so one last example on on the niches is that if you think about Salesforce.com, huge world vision started in sales. Companies like Amazon, big vision started in books. Or Zappos, you know, big vision started in shoes. So it's where, where can you start to get traction to get to the point where you can have you know execute on big vision? So a lot of companies get to a million dollars in revenue, ten million, they stall out. They struggle unintentionally or didn't really understand how much dependence they had on relationships and word of mouth. So from their networks, from customer referrals, you know, again, they're using relationships to drive business. You know, they start investing in how do we how do we grow the growth rate? Obviously, outbound prospecting is one way for some companies. That was what the book Predictable Revenue is all about. There's really a thousand ways or infinite ways to market. So there could be outbound prospecting. There could be you know online marketing. There could be content marketing. I find for most companies. Either so, like the simplest ways I think to to think about it is either you know, does should outbound work better for you or should inbound? If you're like a services company, if you uh, are passionate about inbound, if you have any kind of really complex complicated thing, if you haven't nailed your niche, you should start with you know inbound content marketing. If you know who to go after, or you have any of a product, you've got a segment of customers that are worth at least you know ten or twenty thousand dollars lifetime value. Outbound, or you have a passion for it, outbound might be your starting point. But do you think the LTV determines which strategy you go for? Obviously, if you've got say buffer style customers of thirty dollars per year, and you know content marketing is key of how to optimize your social media compared to sophisticated HR like I don't know BetterWorks. Should should your strategies vary very much dependent? Um, They can be. I mean, the thing is, if you're later stage, you have lots of data. You can be more logical about your strategies. When you're early stage, as I imagine a lot of listeners are, um, people overanalyze. They overthink the strategies. You know, to me, I think when you're early stage, you're probably under a couple million dollars for sure. Take the approach of okay, don't do anything stupid. Right. So if you sell, if you have thirty dollar a month customers, don't do outbound prospecting for them. Uh, but in general, like, follow the thing like the the type of marketing or lead generation that you feel you're most interested in, most passionate about, because it's hard to get it to work. And if you're just doing content marketing because you're supposed to. It's probably not going to be. You're probably not going to be very good at it, and it still takes six months for any kind of real lead generation program, typically, to take off and be producing some results you're feeling happy about. Right? This isn't 30 days. Some people have, you know, hey, we start blogging 45 days ago. We're not getting any leads. Well, first of all, blogging itself doesn't really generate leads. It's pretty rare. Buffer is way the exception, and it takes longer than 45 days. So why in the world would you think you're going to get a bunch of leads because you started blogging 45 days ago? 
Why do, I don't even have any visitors. Why do you think Buff is the exception? What do you think they've done well? I don't know. There's always some exception to everything. They've got good writing. They, you know, hit a sweet spot. Maybe they know some people that helped them take off. They're the, the exception, not the rule. Learn from Buffer, but don't try to be a Buffer, right? Ultimately, a lot of the marketing, any kind of marketing that takes off or lead generation, like for me, outbound prospecting. I learned from all the books and things that talk about prospecting. I learned from everyone who's doing it at Salesforce. But ultimately, I threw all that away and sort of started with my own, you know, figured it out myself. And that often for the big hits, that's usually the case for people. They looked at models, they read stuff, but then they just said, yeah, it's all great, but this is something else. Like this is important to do it this way for no particular reason other than I just think it should be. We, we said about targeting customer segments uh, a couple of minutes ago, and I, I'm intrigued as to kind of the building out and scaling of the sales team and, and how you view specialization in sales and, and how pivotal it is. So how pivotal do you think sales specialize, specialization is to an organization? Let's start with that. Yeah. Well, first of all, the idea of sales specialization, which is you've got multiple sales roles, you have prospectors who prospect or closers who close and, you know, inbound lead responders who respond to inbound leads is probably the, it's like the number one thing that will transform a sales organization by far. That's it. And it's, it's also simple. It's concrete. And so there's some people here in Silicon Valley who are listening like, oh my God, we've been doing this for years. And it's true. It's, it's, it's now it's more of a standard in Silicon Valley. I think a lot of that has to do with predictable revenue of the book. It's still actually the exception around the world around the rest of the country where most it's, it's rarer to find a company that has really specialized its sales teams in the, as far as they should be. And even in the Valley, people don't go far enough where there's still too many companies who have, uh, you know, sort of junior salespeople who are doing both inbound lead response and outbound prospecting. Unless you have a special exception, it's a, that's a big boo-boo. So at what point then does the, say you're an early startup founder with kind of generalist sales teams, because uh, there's only two or three or four, at what point does the team specialize and fragment into the different branches you, you sure. just spoke of well you, as soon as you have one person right so this is and this is actually even the from impossible book well if you have one person you can specialize but you specialize your calendar it might be tuesdays or prospecting or like wednesday and thursday from nine to eleven right because the idea of specialization is not you need a certain number of roles it's about focus is people who are juggling, especially people in sales who are juggling too many things are not going to be as effective as when they do fewer things better guaranteed there's no you know i can't tell you how many people have emailed or said we did we just you know specialized our salespeople and it transformed our business we doubled so but you got to go far farther than you probably think if you have one person they're specializing their time if you have two so usually what happens for a small company ceos doing sales first person they hire should probably be junior salesperson who's handling the inbound lead they're doing the appointment setting whether they're responding to inbound leads doing prospecting and the CEO stays as the, the sort of the closer. Before then, you hire the second might be a salesperson. So again, two salespeople, you got a you know junior person doing lead gen plus a closer. So you start earlier than you think when you have even one or two people to specialize these roles. Well, one thing that I often get kind of later stage founders say to me when they do have specialized sales teams is they have quite high churn in their sales team because of apathy around uh, the individuals being so specialized. Is there a way to, to negate this apathy and this churn when they're so specialized as employees? I think it's a little harder in some sense when you hire people who don't have a lot of sales experience and so they don't have context. It's like uh, you know people who get bored of email prospecting, but they don't really appreciate it because they've never tried to do a lot of like cold call, like hardcore cold calling. So I could do I do see it that you hire junior salespeople, um, they're in sort of inbound or outbound roles, and they get bored. So first of all, and this is actually in the new book as well, is the company's not your mom or your daddy. So one hand, a company or sales leader does have to take responsibility for creating an environment where there's a career path, right? People can see where they're going to go. 
it's important, where there's opportunities to learn and they feel like they're contributing, they're making money and so on, blah, blah, blah. But here's where people go wrong. You'll see sales leaders, CEOs taking too much responsibility. At some point, you have to tell the employee, look, if you're bored, the grass is always greener. No matter wherever you go, that's where you are. If you're bored here doing this, you're going to be bored over there doing that. What can you do to make this more interesting for yourself? Let's meet halfway and do this as a team. It's not, my, it's not the company's responsibility to baby the employees. And we've gone too far, uh, too far on the babying front. And I, I guarantee it's more interesting to be doing sort of that more for the specialized job and being more successful than it is to be juggling more things and being, you know, unsuccessful, which is the case, usually the case. And I want to dive into the 60 seconds faster now. So it's a quick fire round, 60 seconds per answer. How, how does that sound? Um, okay. Yeah, no, we got this. Sure. <laughs> so, so let's do your biggest takeaway from working at Salesforce through the hyper growth. Actually, it really was. Again, I, I went there to sort of learn a lot. I went there to, not to make money, but to, to learn. And I didn't make much money there. I didn't start very early. And, but the but the yeah, but the learning a million times worth it. So over the long term, mm-hmm. so choose learning over money at that point was a wise decision. Biggest productivity tip: You've got twelve children, um, as as I've been told, um, and you write books and are insanely productive and busy. So, what's the productivity tips for you? For me, and actually, there's it's in the book around it's called forcing functions. But basically, I use public deadlines to uh, force me to focus. And like you said, how did I write a book when with a big family? And I got, but uh, yeah, public deadlines. There's nothing like announcing to the world that a book is being going to be done by a certain date to make that happen. And uh, uh, as part of that, I blocked out days of the week. Like Wednesday was always a writing day. Yeah, I know. So how, that's, I, know, I know how you feel with podcast episodes. <laughs> yep. Uh, and then let's do the biggest challenge for you in your role today. What, what kind of challenges you? Oh man, you know, no matter how much money. So there's a couple of things. I think no matter how much money we make, I still need more because the family's so big. Uh, internal family burn rate is very high. Made five figures every month. If that, you try to get your brain around that. But it's been worth it. Big family adoptions and other things. But um, you know, just juggling day to day. As much so, I do consulting. I do paid speaking. We were to have a software arm. I do you know blogs. I got kids today. I was playing you know. So there's a million things I'm doing to juggle. I'm not inherently a juggler. So for me, it's been learning how to sort of block my time out, get a schedule. Sort of what they call it when you like micro focus. You do you know super focus on this for once 15 seconds, and you switch juggling a lot of things across business, personal, family. Often getting like an urgent call. So I have to rely on my time management. I also have a team of people that um, you know I can rely on to a large extent. But flip side is because you know I'm Aaron Ross, the the author, of blah blah blah. There's lots of things I can't delegate to. So yeah, that's hard. It, that's when you've got a personal brand and you're like, I'd yeah. love to fucking delegate this, but you're expecting Aaron Ross, the author, and I can't give you Michael, the assistant. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so like it's it's great. It's really fun having a personal brand this way and getting invited to conferences and getting paid for it now. Um, so really, so it's that juggling. It's the time because there's never enough time for like all the kids, for myself, uh, for my wife. And you know, it's all worth it. Like I talked about time blocking. You know, so Wednesdays we're writing and Monday afternoons are our, my weekly date with my wife. And it'll get easier. Like we still have baby babies, right? If anyone are, is listening, you, you know that first year is just physically grueling up at night. And so in, a, in another year or two, it'll be a lot just easier because I won't have to be like last, the last, I'm up last night. I was up every hour or two with the baby. 
So I'm doing that. So there's probably like that physical, uh, physical, we, physical, we, emotional, we mental juggling I'm always doing right now. We live very different lives, Aaron. I've got to be honest. Um, but anyway, uh, I'm, we're going to, we're finishing the 60 seconds last. I want to talk to you about ownership within, uh, employment and, and how to really instill a sense of ownership within your employees. Um, you've said before kind of employees, um, should feel ownership within their jobs and not that they're renting them. So what do you mean by kind of the ownership part of yeah. employment? Well, think, hey, what, what, what manager or executive owner ever said, oh, my people are, they're so, they're doing so much. We're growing too fast. I can't keep up with my people. They've never, no, cause there's no manager or owners ever said that ever. They always say, why don't my people work harder or make, take more initiative or there's a lot of reasons why, but one of the reasons and the key reason that's been missing today for a long time is ownership right because employees rent this is all about part six in the from impossible book but because employees rent they don't own their jobs and we're not talking about financial ownership which you know is out there but they don't emotionally own their job what does that mean well think about it this way which is think if you own a house or if you own a you know, if you own a house uh, versus rent an apartment, how do you treat them? Right? Or if you rent an apartment versus if you go rent a hotel room, how do you treat them differently? When you own a car versus you rent a car, how do you treat them differently? When you babysit your own kids versus other people's kids, how do you treat them differently? That's renting versus owning. And employees will often do the minimum because they don't own, right? They don't emotionally own the job, the results, the outcomes, and feel like they're going to put their whole heart into it. So how do you so, instill that sense of ownership within within an employee to make them go the extra mile? Yeah. Um, so I'll give you two or three of the simpler ideas that sure tie it together. I think there's six total. There's like the six points in the in the chapter. But Give us two teasers then. And yeah, two. Yeah, buy, two the, buy the book for the remaining four. Uh, what, so here's a couple of simple ones. So first, think about if you're a CEO, everybody knows that you're the CEO and what you're, you know, you're the person. Also, there's some things you can't avoid, like you have payroll. You can't hide. So in the same sense, starting is like what publicly, what do people own for specific projects or, or responsibilities? And what kinds of deadlines or forcing functions do they have that you can come up with that they don't, that they can't hide from? You know, here, I think in the book, there's a simple example of like if... If no one is the single owner of the office refrigerator, it ends up full of rotten food. But as soon as you have one person, everybody knows this Bob owns the, is responsible for the refrigerator, and you know he puts up deadlines around just be cleaned out. Then you get a system in place. So sort of public, clear, single public ownership, no no teams. You can have a team, but each person has to own something that is theirs. Also, that person who owns it has to be responsible for the decisions too. So in other words, managers love to make help employees make decisions. Every time you make a decision for an employee or, you know, sort of guide them to the right one, you're stealing a chance for them to make their own decision. And even if it's the wrong one, like that's how you learn how to make good decisions is you make bad decisions for a while. So clear public ownership, uh, you know, deadlines for some kind of forcing function that they can't hide from plus decision-making authority is sort of that initial starting point to feel like, okay, it's me. I can't hide from this. Someone isn't going to come and save me. Like I need, it's all me. When you own something, you have you can celebrate the highs, but you don't um, unless you've got some failures along the way. You're not really going to be successful. Well, Aaron, uh, obviously as a big fan of the book uh, and obviously the first one too, uh, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, really grateful to you for giving up your time. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yep. Hey, Harry. Thanks very much. 
And I'd like to give a huge hand to Aaron for giving up his time today to be on the show. With 13 kids, I think it's an immense achievement that he managed to fit in time for the 20-minute show. And if you love the episode today, then you can buy the book. It really is a fantastic read. And you can find the link in the show notes and on the website at saster.com. That's S-A-A-S-T-R.com. Likewise, if you love the show today, you can follow me on Snapchat at hstebbings. Or you can follow the main man, Jason Lemkin, on Twitter at JasonLK. Or Aaron on Twitter at MotoC. CEO. As always, we so appreciate all your support and look very forward to bringing you our next episode on Friday.